Welcome to another episode of Owning Wilderness Life Skills. I'm your host, Bear. And I'm Trent. And today we'll be talking about some very important topics in regards to outdoor skills. Fire. And water. So turn up the volume, kick back, and relax. And be ready to learn something new. So So you don't don't go dying in the woods. Hey, welcome back, guys. This is episode seven of our Owning Wilderness Life Skills podcast. Today, we're getting back into some wilderness skills. Back into the nitty gritty. Yeah, back into what you're going to be doing when you don't want to be doing any of it because you don't want to be where you are. Yeah, well, that's most days, I think, for us. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm, again, man, it's been a hell of a weekend. We're coming up on the holiday, and I finally feel like my house is a little festive. You know, we waited to the last minute to go get a Christmas tree. Your house is very festive. It I is. I went away for an evening and came back, and it was like Santa's reindeer took a shit in here. Yeah, it's Christmas, man. Yeah. We've got garland, <laughs> colorful reds, greens, blues, We've candy canes. Four and a half foot long cat in the hat, Santa hats. Yeah, this thing is amazing. This this reminds me of Charles Dickens' you know hat that he wore, the original one, the big, big hat. I feel festive. There we go. Totally. It's like one of those, you know, you ever see Charlie and Chocolate Factory? Yeah. Okay, you know when the grandparents are laying in bed Absolutely. and they've got those absurdly long hats? Yep. That's what this is, but cat and hat. Yeah, it's the, the, it's the nightcap things yeah. that uh, Scrooge Wars and yeah. Charles Dickens. Yeah. It's crazy to think that. I think that was written back in 1843. I, 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 I might be wrong. And I think it was actually yesterday's date that that happened. So yeah, today's the 20th. When we're recording this, yesterday was the December nineteenth. So December nineteenth, eighteen forty-three. And I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, just contact us and let me know because I'd love to hear. It. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everybody just contact us. Yeah, we're we're all about listening to you guys and and chatting with you. So you know, if you want to, you can contact us at contact at owningwildernesslifeskills.com. That's simple, really easy. All right, guys. Before we get into this, another thing. To go along with that new email, we're really excited. We are uh, making progress on the website. It's it's coming yep. along great, and we cannot wait to get it out there for you. Early Absolutely. In January. Yeah, so hopefully we'll be able to actually offer everyone the first you know multi-day class um, sometime in March. That is our goal where we can have and be ready and prep for you guys to come out here and join us. So, you know, share the word if you're somebody that's into wilderness survival or you're coming out here to Estes and you just want to meet two of the craziest wilderness men you've ever met in your life. Here's your opportunity to come out and hang out with, you know, with Trent and Bear. (laughs) Yeah, guys. Well, uh, let's get into a little bit of what we're going to teach you uh, if you do come out here. How to stay alive out there. How to not die in the woods. Yeah. Well, right now, um, we're facing, you know, negative eight degrees here in the next few days. It is going to be cold. And what's interesting is, is that Trent and I are actually choosing to go out during the midst of this storm and take a lot of photos and video for our upcoming website. And we're going to be basically putting ourselves in the survival situation in negative eight degrees where um, it's going to be a little hairy out there. And the topics that we're going to be covering today are two of the most important topics that during this expedition we're getting ready to go out on are going to be key to staying alive. Yeah, we're going to need 
Something people don't realize a lot during the winter is the necessity for water. Yeah. You don't feel as thirsty as on a hot day when you're sweating your hat, your butt off. Um, but then fire is a very obvious necessity. Yep. But we're also going to go over more uses than just hydration and staying warm. Yeah, you know, there's... And that is the key gist of it. And, you know, staying hydrated, Trent had a really good point. In the wintertime, when you're cold, it's hard to drink water. Now, when we go out, Trent, I just want you to know, we're not taking any water with us. There's silence here. You should see the look yep, on his face. There's... He's going, what are you getting me into, Bear? Well, I mean, we can procure water, but I thought this was a photo-taking expedition, so it'd be, you know, it'd be cake. But... um while we're out there, we might as well put the skills to the test. Yeah. And uh, it's always a good idea in any situation, especially when you can get out of there. Wherever we're going to be, a decent hike isn't really a issue for Bear and I. So we can get out of there and back to the vehicle and head out if something went wrong. But yep. um, all right, I guess we're going to be uh, creating our own water sources. Well, that's just the thing. There is... At where we're going to be going up here on Mount Olympus, which is somewhere, you guys, that if you come out here, um, we might take you out there. But there is water to be had. Um, and it's such an abundant amount that I just figured it's a good idea trying to get you out there and show you the water sources. Yeah. Well, you know. Guys, I'm a recent transplant into Estes Park. I haven't been up on Olympus yet. And Bear will not stop raving about it. So he's going to go out there and get me cold and dehydrated and... Yep. Filthy for a day. Well, it's my background. It's my backyard playground is Mount Olympus. It's just so close to the house. It's easy to get to. And, you know, it's it's not a strenuous hike by any means. But you have national forests there as well as private property that's pretty open to play on. Now, when it comes down to being out in the wild, you know, you depending on your situation, you know, shelter is obviously your first thing. And we've talked about that in our previous podcast cast about shelters. And if you haven't listened to it yet, get on back there, take a look at the shelters podcast and kind of catch up with where we're at here. But after you've got your shelters made, you know, the next order of operations is either fire or water, getting those two things secured, you know, and the importance of those is going to be completely dictated about what you choose by the particular particulates of your situation. Yeah, you know? situations are situational, as we brought up before when talking about the uh, our priorities, our list of priorities that we're going to run down. And you can swap them out depending on your situation. Pretty much every situation, you're going to have a slightly altered list of priorities. Now, when it comes to making fire, you know, one of the things that I am very adamant about is that at all times, in your loadout, you're carrying a Bic lighter. You know, they're cheap. They will light well over, you know, a thousand times. Sometimes you'll get 2,000 strikes out of a Bic lighter. Um, and the fuel in a Bic lighter, this is kind of a neat thing that Bic does, is they always load enough fuel in that lighter that it will burn continuously for one hour. Now, mind you, if you've ever held a Bic down for a long extended period of time, and I don't care why you had to do that, I'm just saying... It gets hot and melts, but there's enough fuel in there for one hour of flame time. So, you know, they're very, very useful. Quick fire starters. And, and I always say in a survival situation, if you got the right tools with you, there's no reason to suffer, right? So that is the, if you have a, a fire pyramid, right? 
And I'm not talking about, you know, what's needed about the oxygen and fuel and, and an ignition source. I'm saying if you talk about the tool pyramid, it always starts at the very base of that is your Bic lighter. Now, the second thing on that list, as you're going to move up it, it's going to go into your ferro rod, which is something that I'm a huge component of. Carrying a ferro rod is just one of those tools that's going to keep you alive. I mean, those things burn so extremely hot and they make a flame out of any sort of nesting you can get. Um, so it's absolutely an imperative tool. And then on the top of that pyramid would be your knowledge skills where you know how to do something such as make a fire busting set. So a bow drill set from the materials around you and what you have on you. Yeah, absolutely. And as we go down that list, there's everything. I'm a big proponent of always find creative ways and new ways to use the things you have. Um, a ferro rod is obviously going to be better than a Bic spark. But when you're out of fuel, people feel like they're at a loss. You can still get sparks depending on what kind of Yeah, your flint's not going to be burnt out. Exactly. Yeah. Flint being there is a huge plus on a lighter, even if it's out of fuel. Yeah. Um, and then along with having the skill of building a fire busting set, you now have with a Bic, a ferro rod, and those skills, that knowledge, you have a plan, a backup plan, and a tertiary plan to get you fired. Yeah, there's no reason that with those things in mind, because along with, with those skills, and, and mind you, I'm not saying go, like if you're a newbie to the wilderness, go buy a Bic lighter, buy a ferro rod, and read a book on busting on how to make a, a bow drill kit, because I'm telling you, you're going to go out there and you're still going to struggle. Yes, you you have to practice. And I'm saying, make a nesting. You know, Due to the environment you're in, you have to know where to get dry or flammable nesting to start your fire. And here in the Rockies, I mean, right now, there is massive snowdrifts everywhere. You know, anywhere above 8,000 feet, there's three to eight inches of snow, if not more in some areas on the ground. And uh, regardless, I don't care if there's six feet of snow on the ground, I'm going to be able to find dry nesting material in this environment up here. Well, and that comes from another thing we've spoken about when we went through your wilderness EDC is the fatwood. Yes. Something, when I started out, I had no idea of. It wasn't on my radar. I thought you needed dry brush. I thought you had to find the sticks on the underside of a fallen tree that got hung up. You, mm -hmm. I thought it had to be pretty specific situations or you were just out of luck. And um, over the years, there's so many sources for you to create what you need out in the wilderness. The key before you go out anywhere is having these skills, but also researching the terrain you're going to be in, what the plants are there, what they create. Just that we went out to cut down this Christmas tree and just the sheer amount of spots you showed me where I could get fat wood, we were just yep. walking right past. Yep. I would have been oblivious to six years ago. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, you know, fatwood is all over, especially in these areas where we've got these lodgepole pines, the ponderosas, you know, and people will have the ability. But if you don't go out and practice harvesting it, locating it, if you don't have the right tools to procure it, you know, if you don't have a bushcraft knife. Now, mind you, if you know about fatwood, you can go out there and with a rock, right? You can yeah, bash sure, apart yeah. some wood and get to it. But how hard is that going to be? That's going to be so difficult. So miserable. 
So miserable. You know, we were kicking, you know, we found a big dead log and actually we're going to go back and harvest some of the fatwood that's out of it. Um, But, you know, I, I always find when it comes to fatwood, I'm looking for those really old dead trees that were standing dead, um, died standing. So they were either, you know, hit by disease, such as one of the the beat, we have pine beetles up here and different things, or struck by lightning. The lightning strikes now, those are the ones that seem to yield the largest amount of fatwood. I don't know, I don't know what it is about the lightning strike, but when the tree gets hit by lightning and it slowly dies from the top down, all that sap tends to just go and run down the limbs. You know, the coat it process happens um, as the tree is diving and coat it. You guys, that's a nomenclature for, you know, compartmentalization of decay in trees. I won't geek out too much on that stuff here. <laughs> um, but it, it's what happens when you have a limb that dies and it goes back to the, the main trunk of the tree. But as that, that lightning struck tree goes and slowly dies from the top down, all that sap and resin begins to collect in the base of the tree. And when that tree finally dies completely and falls over, you'll have that rotted stuff. But like we were digging into that stump there, I was just wanted to show you. And we got into the pieces past all the punk and it's still solid. And you Absolutely. break that out of there, that wood, that, that's why they call it the namesake of fat wood. You pull it out of there, looks like you're holding a chunk of fat. Yeah, it does. It's, uh, it looks very waxy and, and it's solid. It's darker than a lot of the rest of the wood because that sap is down there and soaked into it. Here, hold some of this. <laughs> I've jumped up to get this fat wood and I forgot that I was wearing this damn hat. And I'm like, what's on my back? This six foot long, you know, Santa <laughs> hat. But, you know, the fat wood, you look at it and it's just, it's very awesome. And it has a lot of other uses other than fire. Now, when it comes to making a bow drill kit, up here in the Rocky Mountains, you know, finding a top rock um, that's not pegmatite, you know, something that's going to be useful, I'll use fatwood as my top rock. So holding that down on top of the spindle, it works great because the waxes and the pine that's in there, it kind of like lubricates, it keeps it from heating up too much. Because, um, you know, if you've ever used a piece of wood for your top piece, you're getting smoke on both sides. Absolutely. Yeah. And black and char, and it's digging a hole through your yep. top wood very quickly. And yeah. Yeah, now, and it's it's much heavier than you would think a chunk of wood this size would be mm-hmm. because of all that sap that's run down into it yep. and been absorbed. Well, and it's important to know, so if we start with off with our lighter, and we've procured some fat wood. Let's say we didn't have it in our kit like you're supposed to, um, and you had to go out and find it, which is very easy to do. The first thing you want to do if you have flame, like open flame, like a lighter, is you don't have to actually turn the fatwood into a fluff. You can you can literally scrape off shavings, kind of like a fire stick, you know, or a fuzz stick where you're taking it and you're, you're making the notches. And if you're not familiar with a fuzz stick, it's basically just where you take a stick and instead of cutting pieces of wood off, you're just notching it, you know, as deep as you can and kind of flaring it out and making it look fuzzy. Uh, but you do that with fatwood. Hold a big lighter to that thing, and next thing you know, you've, you've got flame, and it's burning hot. Now, that's what's nice about this. Now, if you move on up the pyramid here of fire tools, and you're dealing with a ferro rod, a ferro rod is not going to be able to light those large pieces on quickly, right? If at all. It makes it very difficult. So what I'll actually end up doing with the fat wood is taking the back of my bushcraft knife and just taking, not shavings, but it's almost like little particulate pieces that begin to fall off and just shaving it down. And I'll get a piece, you know, ideally you want the size of a ping pong ball, right? 
um, about of debris coming off the fatwood. And the reason that you want that much is because um, mistakes happen. I've been cold trying to start a fire in the snow and had a small little piece of fatwood big enough that I know I'm going to be able to light my kindling on fire and everything. You know, it's, it's good. But, um, you know, I smacked it with, <laughs> with my hand. You know what I mean? Because yep. uh, scattered it into yeah, the Yeah, because it's cold. It scatters yep. to the wind. It's a pain in the butt. Um, and again, to, you know, teaching proper technique with ferro rod. You know, I, I always tell people, don't, you know, you hold the ferro rod in your hand. You hold your striker in the other. You never take your striker and run along the ferro rod towards your, towards your nest. Because that's how you punch your nest and yep. scatter to the wind. Um, and sometimes when you're cold, you know, you make mistakes and you'll do that. But the best practice method is to hold your striker close to it, put your ferro rod underneath and draw the ferro rod back from underneath the striker, throwing those sparks. It actually controls the direction of where the sparks are and it isolates them much closer to your nesting. And fatwood, it just it goes right up. I just love smelling this stuff. <laughs> Smells good. I gave Trent a piece of fatwood. We're both holding fatwood right now. It just, smells magnificent right now. It's intoxicating. But that's that's another the point you make where you smacked your little bundle of fluff off of your fatwood. Um, that's another reason to go out in your backyard with a chunk of fatwood and practice this, guys. Yeah. Because figuring that out when you're cold and tired and up there and you need fire is really frustrating. And sometimes your brain doesn't work through. Oh, I need a different method. Sometimes it's like, oh, I just need to try harder or do it again or do better. Um, so figuring out your techniques and putting them to practice in a safe environment before you go out there is absolutely necessary. And I think we're probably going to tell that to everybody every time we teach you a new skill. Uh, yeah, every time we bring up something new, every episode, every class is going to be like... We're going to say the same thing. You guys are going to learn this right here, right now, before we put you in the situation where you need it. Because yeah. when you need it, if you haven't practiced it... You're going to make mistakes. Yeah, you're, you're going to. I make mistakes. Trent makes mistakes. Everybody does it, and it's part of the learning process. Um, now, again, I'm just, man, it's such a huge component of this. Whether it's fatwood or dry tinder or you're using pine needles, dried grass, you're using, you know, dried bark. There's a lot of different things that you can use for nesting materials. The most important thing is, is that your nesting is, number one, dry. Just dry. It has to be dry. Yeah, it's not going to light up. You'll, you'll just sit there and you'll be puffing on that and it's just nothing but steam and smoke coming out of your nest. The next thing you know, you've charred through your nest and there's nothing left. I've had instances where I've busted a flame in 45 seconds, but there's nothing more frustrating than somehow you do well enough to keep an ember alive inside nesting, but it will not light. Yeah. And you thought, oh, maybe it's just dry enough, it will, but... If it's wet and it's a, a hit to your morale, it takes up your time, it takes up your energy, and it takes up your materials. Yeah. And I think this kind of draws us into the pyramid of the fire tools now, and that is bow drilling, making your own ember. Now, there is a lot of different types of methods of bow drilling, and there's a lot of different types of bow drills, and it's very important, I think, that as you get further in your bushcraft experience to begin to, for lack of a better word, bust out of the <laughs> traditional bow, you know, bow and drill and do other, do other types. Um, you know, there's, you know, hand drilling, for instance, is absolutely excruciating and horrible. And I don't recommend that anyone ever do that. 
but you need to practice it just in case you have to. Yeah, just in <laughs> case you need to. If yeah. for some reason um, you need cordage on your shelter or whatever it might be, and you've used up everything you could use as a bowstring, I mean, what you got left is your hands, unless you don't have that skill. Yeah. Then you have to take apart part clothing, of your shelter. shelter clothing, shelter, Yep. Start ripping seams out of your socks or something. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is one thing, too, is why I always recommend that, you know, you, when you're picking things such as shoelaces or bootlaces for your outdoor gear, find something that is extremely sturdy and strong because you don't know if you're going to have to utilize that as cordage, whether it be for anything out there such as, you know, hauling stuff, tying things down, lashing, or bow drilling with it, because bow drilling is brutal on cords. Just yeah, brutal. Yeah, absolutely. That if you're using it on a daily basis, your cord's gonna run out before your bow does, before your spindles do, before like that's a ton of friction happening and it's under tension the whole time. Yeah. Um some yeah, people get overzealous and they do it the first run through. You yeah. know, that they just bust through their stuff. Um and you know, as you learn, there's a lot of little nuances to bow drilling. You know, it's the pressure that you're using, your down pressure. It's, you know, the pressure of the bow, of the string on your spindle. You know, it's, it has to do with the, the types of woods that you choose to try to get a, the ember with. Um, yeah, we go through all that in the class. In fact, we'll have, when you come here and you take a class with us, you're going to try to bow drill with different materials. It's not, we're not just going to give you the number one thing that's going to give you success. We're going to have you try it with at least two or three other types of wood. So you get an idea of how it works together. Um, when it comes to bow drilling, Trent, I've always had success. Same wood on wood. So my spindle is the same as my fireboard. Those two things I've always found to be key. Yeah, no, that that's a really good point. The other thing that's going to really affect it, which is, I feel the most nuanced piece of bow drilling is your preparation of your materials. Yeah. And just because you find the right wood, the tree that you want, the way that you harvest it, the way that you prepare it, all of that stuff is incredibly important to being able to bust the flame and do it consistently. Yeah. I mean, that, in that, you know, spindle creation, absolutely, extremely important. Your bow is another tool that has to be done just right. You know, I'm very particular about my bow. Um, I, I like to use vine maple for it, and that's because I like my bow straight, and I like it to be, you know, I find maple to be very strong. I've broken bows, you know, out of pine. I mean, I've, I've used other tools, but I've just found that I like a harder, stiffer bow. Now, the thing is, too, is that when you're coming down to your nesting material and you've got that ember in there, don't worry about it. It's, um, you guys, just so you know here, we still have a lady with us. She is always our constant companion. Yes. Yeah. She's always here, yeah. always causing trouble. Always farting and knocking over water bottles. And she just did that. <laughs> I'm like, Trent, it's okay. It's just water. It's just water. Well, it's not a big just, deal. Yeah, I don't want to leave a wet spot in your newly decorated home. Yeah, it, no, it's okay. It's very don't festive. Want Santa I've slipping. got kids in here too. Yeah, I do, man. Give me the rest of the present, Santa. <laughs> yeah. But I was saying about, you know, when you have your ember, and once you get the ember, that's still only a part of the equation, you know? Yeah, you got an ember. That's great. And that's usually the first milestone when someone begins bow drilling. Uh, the second thing is is actually turning that ember into a flame. Yeah, in your absolutely. Nest. And knowing what you're doing, uh, something I see really often is people treat an ember like a lighter. 
-huh. And they want to cover it from all the wind and lean down into it, have it close to their chest. And their Suck chin all down. the oxygen out of it. Exactly. Yep. And it's just a simple turn of your wrist and where you're positioning it can get you that flame in 15 seconds of blowing yeah. or 30 seconds versus two minutes of struggling and potentially killing your ember because where you think you're protecting it, you're actually blocking the oxygen it needs to create the flame. Yeah, and you'll notice two people wrap their hands around it. And that's why, whole, that's why I tell hands, them. hands, grab yeah. the whole thing. That's why I say one hand and get pompous about it. Get that pinky in the air. Yep. <laughs> that way when you're blowing through, you get that air. You know, it, But you have that. But then you also have to have the right amount of contact from your nesting, depending on what that nesting is, mm -hmm. with that ember for it to actually want to grow into a flame. And that's where the uh, experience of practicing these skills, again, I'm going right back to it, guys, practice these skills, comes in because there is, it's almost a mental thing where you can see more of the ember, you can see it's all orange when you're blowing on it, but your nest is completely wide open and you're just putting air on an ember, slowly burning away the material that the ember is made of. When you squish it down, you can barely see it, just a tiny bit of orange in there when you blow. It's like, oh no, am I smothering it? Um, people think that a lot. You gotta look for the signs, look it, for the smoke. It's it gotta start smoking be immediately. touching other material yep. to light the other material. Yep. And um, a lot of this, for me, I learned pretty straightforward when I learned how to bow drill and it all seemed to make sense to me. But the job where I met Bear, when we were working with these teenagers out in the woods, they had to learn to bow drill and they made every mistake in the book. And it's just those, <laughs> those mental cues where, oh, I want to protect it from the wind so it doesn't go out. It's not a flame. Yeah. Like, you're not, don't protect it like that. Also, yeah, you can see it's glowing bright orange. Why isn't it lighting? Because you're not squishing it together. You're not touching anything. Yeah. It's just sitting in the same spot. You've got it in a little holder right yep, there. Right exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're holding it in an ashtray made out of a bird's nest and just breathing on it. That's all you're yeah. doing. You know, and there's important things to it. You know, whether you're using your fire in a survival situation or you're using it in a, in a camping type situation where you're just out there for enjoyment and, you know, you're, you need a fire. And it's, it's management of that fire as a resource. Absolutely. It, yeah, so you know, protecting the land, protecting yourself from getting injured and burned because burn injuries in the wild, uh, that's how you get infections. That's how you get, that's how you die, you know? Yeah, you, infections in the wilderness is yeah. your biggest enemy. It's not the bear who's actually annoyed by you and is gonna try to avoid I don't know, you. if I get annoyed by you, I might, it depends. Okay, not okay. that bear. Okay, okay, It's not the hairy bear with actual claws who just is annoyed by you and is going to try to avoid you it's you doing something dumb and not being able to keep it clean not being able to patch it up the infections yeah and that's that's one of the reasons too you know people are always thinking you know we're just gonna to touch on first aid kind of digress a little bit here you know about like oh i i just sewed myself up and i always look at that and i, I think to myself man I hope that you would at least brutally clean that wound first. Oh, I bet Be it, Because yeah. you're sowing infection into your body. And it's the same thing with these blisters and the burns. You get into second and third degree burns um, and where, you know, your skin is, is blistering and becoming exposed. And the, the odds of infection are very high. Incredible. Very high. Especially when you're that dirty. And you're, yeah. you're going to be that dirty. You're going to be super dirty. No matter what you're doing... Your body's going to be covered in 
everything from the branches that you're moving down, from cutting limbs, from laying in the dirt, from sitting in the dirt, from digging in the dirt, from just everything you do is going to get you more and more dirty. The longer you're in a wilderness scenario, the greater the risk of infection. Yeah. Even small cuts and injuries. Yep. And, you know, also when it comes down to it, I want to know, have you ever been in the situation where you've had a fire on the ground and all of a sudden you look over 15 feet away, there's smoke coming out of the ground? I don't know if it was 15 feet away. Oh. I've, I've had it happen about four feet away. So I have been, you know, so when I spent a lot of time up in the Mountain National Forest and I used to hang out at this place called Bagby Hot Springs. Again, you guys, a little plug here. If you know Bagby Hot Springs, let me know about it. I'd love to get you guys on the on the podcast. We can riff about Bagby and uh, how unfortunate that has become over the years. But, uh, you know, I was out there and we had a fire going in this fire you know, we had it going for, gosh, probably four days, five days. This is raining, so we're constantly keeping the fire going. And in the in the temperate rainforest, the duff layer is huge. goes down for feet in some area. And we caught the ground on fire. And it started popping up 15 feet, 10 feet, 12 feet, all around us. Because it had just kind of charred underground. And as it dried everything out, it would just pop up and flame up. And so we actually had to dig the ground bring water buckets from the uh, Kalawash River, which is right there, um, which is neat because I was actually baptized in the Kalawash River. Oh, wow. Of the Kalawash, yeah. Nice. During the same time, actually. And uh, just dumped buckets of water on there to, to do that. So, um, And even up here in the Rocky Mountains, um, we don't do Dakota fire pits out here because it's duff. It's either rock or duff, and you'll catch the ground on fire. And, yes, in a survival situation signaling yeah you might think ah, i don't care i'll start a forest fire dude you start a forest fire you're dead absolutely you're dead the absolutely. smoke's gonna kill you the fire's gonna kill you mm-hmm. especially with the wind out here yeah the, the one constant since i've been here guys is this wind you do not know what's coming <laughs> and when it's here it's aggressive yeah it's bad well I kind of think this kind of rolls us through the fires and just kind of touches on it, you guys. I I think Trent and I could talk about fire for at least 30 well, episodes. Sir, before you move on from that, the one other thing I wanted to touch on was, so you're going to have your fire for your warmth, but if you're still doing things, still running through your priorities list at night, like you need to use the fire for other things. For light sources mm. and that can get us into another thing which we will probably speak about more on the podcast but it's more of a in-person learning um bear makes some incredible torches yeah and in fact i wanted to touch on that too a little bit so thank you for reminding me yeah bushcraft torches um it, and you're right you're using it for light and um it's a really important thing helps you got to have light at night um but the other thing is too is is being able to sterilize and sanitize your water. Yes, fire. Absolutely. Boiling yeah. water. You have to make potable water. Yep. And the the reason I brought up using that, because um, most people have a phone. Um, if you're any kind of a wilderness person, you're going to have a flashlight and hopefully a headlamp as well. But the longer you stay somewhere, the odds that you're going to need to move yourself to somewhere grow yeah. um, and you're going to need those batteries if you're in an area and you've built a shelter use 
the fire for your light. Yeah. Use torches, guys. Figure out how to make the pine pitch mm-hmm. and use that for pine your Pine pitch, candles. I mean, if you, if you are at the point where you're able to get fat, you know, you can boil it down, make tallow, you know, make long-lasting candles from it. There's a lot of different things. But, yeah, fire is your best friend. But I just want to reiterate that it also can hurt you. And so you just got to be really cautious about that. Now, the other part of this podcast we want to talk about was that flip side, that interchangeable piece to it. The opposite of the fire is the water. The water. Yeah. You're, you know, it, they, they say, there's, well, the CDC says, talks about the rules of three, right? And it says that, well, you can, you can survive three days without water. Um, and you, you got to have water. It's one of those most important things. You can go without food. You're going to be weak. But you're gonna be alive, and you'll. And if you got fortitude and you have grit, you'll keep moving, doing what you gotta do. And so, procuring water is a is a big piece of wilderness survival. And depending on the terrain you're in, that can look like a lot of different options. And some of them are easier than others, depending on where you're at. Absolutely. That's why I'm so curious to go up and find these water sources with you. Now that I've been informed, we're not taking any of our own water. Um, <laughs> But every place it seems that I've gone, finding water takes a different method. Yeah, it's hard. Especially finding a consistent source yeah. or being able to consistently find new sources if they're, you're losing them quickly. Yeah, or even just being able to get enough water from a source to make it worth your time and viable to get it. You know, in the summertime up here, now in the winter here where we're at right now, there's ice everywhere, there's snow, and we still have water running down the creeks, okay? So that's, that's our most abundant water sources. And there are a few different springs and places that you can find, but they'll be frozen at this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the summertime, a lot of that stuff is really limited. You're limited to the water that's running down the middle of the canyons. And unless you're able to recognize in terrain features where water might have gathered or ran in the past or might be just underground or subsurface or in the rocks and you know for instance one of the ways out here um, you'll notice when we're out hiking that there are these large outcrops of pegmatite and you'll notice a lot of them have these black lines running down them and one of the easier ways is if you can find an area where you can see that water has run over it and pooled down underneath these rocks, you can typically dig down and uh, be able to get enough water to drink. You know, you'll, you'll, dig a, you'll dig a foxhole and let that slowly fill back up. But you also have to be okay with drinking water. That's not clear. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's dirty water, guys. It's yeah. muddy water. But um, in those situations where it's filling up... Um, it's pretty clean. And it's I've not, never gotten sick from drinking from, yeah, a, from a foxhole. And it's hole. not stagnant. That's yeah. going to be dirt and minerals in that water that's, that's right. making it unclear. But it does have to be said, there is uh, a mental reaction to drinking water that's not clear. Yeah. And after you've been out there for a while, there's a very positive mental reaction to, again, drinking water that's clear. Yeah. You know, in a survival situation right off the bat, drink what you can. You need to sterilize it. You need to get a fire going. You know, and again, this kind of leads into like why we choose to teach to carry some of the gear that we do, such as a single-walled stainless steel water bottle. 
Absolutely. You know? Everybody thinks this insulation is so necessary. Yeah. Well, out in the woods, I'm not trying to keep my coffee warm. Yeah. That is now a tool. That's, that's right. That's a cooking utensil. It's a, a water purifying utensil. I, it's no longer something that I, and especially out there, anything you collect is going to be cold. And your insulation is going to be keeping it cold, and it already sucks to drink cold water. Yeah. So having a single wall that you can stick inside a couple of your layers, um, stick inside a hoodie pocket that's, you know, a layer deep, and it'll actually warm up a little bit. That's another small amount of comfort, small amount of like mental benefit to having something that's not as cold as the water in the river where you got it from. Yeah, it's going to warm up, you know, and. You can also, like you said, you can cook with it. It's a cooking utensil. So if you're capturing things out there, you know, getting squirrels or mice or whatever you got, you know, either you got a big game, you got a deer or something, boiling your meat is the best way to actually preserve most of the nutrition from that. Because you're actually, no, you're not losing any nutrition. You're able to drink that broth. You're able to eat the meat, um, you know, and if you boil it, you know it's going to be sterilized. Yeah, so if, if you have any type of utensils to get the meat out of whatever you're cooking in, so in a bottle, it's going to have a much smaller neck. You're going to need a longer, thinner utensil. Your knife might not reach or something like that, but if you can get the meat out, you can have a meal, and you can cap it up and put it somewhere and have broth as yeah. well. So it's it, you can make multiple meals. If you have things like a single-walled bottle you can actually cook in, because... If it's a car accident and it's Bear with his wilderness EDC, Bear has a lot of things in there, but he didn't bring his cooking set. Yep. Right. Got my water bottle. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Got my water bottle. Now, here's something interesting. I, now, I've done a lot of research and, and I've actually read a lot of different studies over the year about the efficacy of time over boil for sterilization. So. Okay. I know that a lot of people, and I've, and I've seen this many times, and um, in fact, when I first started teaching wilderness skills, I used to teach, boil your boil it for a few minutes. You want five minutes. Five yeah, minutes. Yeah, that's, that's the impression I was under. Yeah, and, and I, was, I was under that impression for many, many years. The studies that I have read, and I wish that I had them in front of me so that I could actually cite them, um, and this is one of those times where I'm going to say, Take my word for it. Usually I say, don't take my word. Research it yourself. And I guess I'm going to say the same thing now. Don't take my word for this. Do some research. You'll find out the truth of the matter. Um, but what I found out that um, during that period that it takes to actually heat the water up to a boil, once it reaches a boil, and guys, I'm not talking a simmer. I'm saying a full-on boil. A full rolling boil. A rolling the boil. entire yep. pot or whatever is bouncing. By the time it hits that, you've sterilized everything in there. There's no nothing that can survive that. Oh, and okay. so then taking it off, and then by the time it actually cools to where you can handle it and drink it, you've sterilized the water. So there's, so I always say, at nowadays I teach, boil it for a minute, 60 seconds. And if you're, and that's like, if you're really just wanting to be extra careful, you give it that full minute past the <clears throat> point of full on boiling. Um, me personally though, Past few years, I bring it to a boil, I drink it, and then it's good. And I haven't gotten sick. Um, and and I and like I said, there's been a lot of studies on this what what that takes. Now you got to realize too that depending on your altitude, that's going to change. You know how quickly you're going to be able to bring something to a boil. You know if you're at a sea level, it's going to boil a little quicker. You know, and so it's uh, 
you might want to give it a little more time. I, that's when I'd probably add that extra minute, minute and a half, two minutes. Um, but up here where, where, you know, we are, you know, it takes a while. It takes a little bit longer for it to boil. So I, I'm not so worried about it. By the time it gets there, it's already heated all that, everything up and killed yeah, it all off. Absolutely. That, I mean, it does make sense. I've always been under the impression that you needed to boil it for a couple minutes, but I never did any research on it. Yeah. I've just never gotten sick from it. <laughs> yeah, I, I came across a random study when I was just researching, and, and it led me down the rabbit hole of water boiling times. It was pretty pretty cool and interesting to see. Now, one of the other things that I have been a big fan of, um, obviously water boiling, that's going to be your main go-to, is uh, the, the life straws. I'm, I'm a huge fan of life straw. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Going into a water source and having that just little bit of extra security that you can yeah. take from whatever water source you find because if they're not abundant and you're finding water sources that are very questionable. Stagnant, nasty, oily surface. <laughs> hard, yeah, it's hard to pass up a water source though yeah. when you've been struggling out in the wilderness yeah. and passing it up because you don't have a life straw could mean you don't find more water and drinking it could be just as bad or worse yeah. as not finding And a life straw, that's a luxury item. That's, yes, that's it a, is. It that's an absolute luxury hiker item, you know, but uh, it's definitely something. I have one. I don't have it in my EDC, but when I remember to take it, I'll take it with me. Yeah. If I know, I'm, like, when we go out, I'll be bringing the life straw. That's just going to go in. Um, but it's not part of my, like, I'm going out to the woods for five hours, so I'm just going to go out there. I don't take it, you know. Yeah. It's for extended time. <clears throat> though, though they are small enough, uh, most of you guys could definitely fit them in an EDC if you prioritize that. Yeah, you really could. And, and there's no reason not to have one. I mean, it's they're cheap, they're affordable, they're long-lasting. As long as you use them properly, blow them out, and keep them clean. Um, now, the other thing is, too, I want to talk about before the end of the show, because we are kind of getting close to the time here is, you know, building water filtration systems. And this is, again, one of those things, once you're actually stabilized, you have your shelter, you have your fire, you have a water source you've been drinking from. Um, now you want to build a water fil filter. And part of this key is, is having that fire because you're going to want to create some activated charcoal. And I'm not Absolutely. just taking just, just the burned up stuff. You actually have to make some charcoal, which is a process in itself yeah it's a whole process on its own and um this is i mean stepping into creating your own water filtration system is committing to your shelter it's committing to where yeah. you are it's committing to your setup and that could be for a number of reasons um whether for some reason you can't get out due to uh conditions right now and you're not sure when it'll clear up or you're not sure how you're going to be able to move out or you've crested a couple hills near your shelter space and you can't seem to orient yourself and you're just stuck there for a little while um the smartest thing to always do is to continue to improve your necessities always improve 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 and branch out further and further and further as you um are able to carry more water with you as you have some smoked meat or other things you can eat when you go and step out in case something happened to you out there. You fall off one of the hills and get hurt and you're not near your shelter. But um, this is a, it's a time commitment to create one and it is committing to spending more time where you are. And you're committing some of your hard resources that you have, you know, because you have to have a vessel for containment and filtration and there's a lot to it. Um, and so I'm really excited, folks. 
I'm hoping that, you know, we get some of you guys out here soon and you want to come and learn these skills. So, Trent, I've been having a great time talking with everybody, talking with you. Yeah, I can't wait to go out and just between yourself and I, some of the different ways that we do things, um, just put some of our methods to the test up on Mount Olympus. Yep. Just getting some photos and checking it out for a day. It's not an extended stay, so we can really go all in on like building and procuring and creating things while we're out there and expend our energy. Um, but uh, What makes yeah. it hard is that we are going out on the coldest night Yes. The worst weather. It yes. will be a blizzard of a snowstorm at times. It's going to be intense. Well, that's why I'm saying go all out. Because if we stop moving, it is going to be a cold night. Yeah. <laughs> we will be utilizing Mylar as an insulator reflector. Absolutely. 100%. Because we yes. will be building a bushcraft shelter out there to sleep in. It won't be one of those nights where we just set up the sill nylon tarp. And enjoy the enjoy the view. Yeah, it, this yeah. is going to be. We're going out there. Yeah, this is not sightseeing. Things, you know, it's it's and honestly, that's where I thrive. I love those environments. Well, you guys, I want you to know we really want you to contact us. So again, I'm just going to reiterate our email address is contact at owningwildernesslifeskills.com. Super easy. I know yeah. it's a lot sort of type out, but easy to remember. <laughs> Uh, and guys, uh, please check out the Facebook page um, for any updates on our website uh, and subscribe to the podcast so you get future episodes. We're going to be moving back into uh, some stories. We're going to flip back and forth between skills and stories and our own experiences. And we're even uh, playing with the idea potentially of having either callers or just a guest on the podcast. Uh, if there's somebody with a lot of experience or a lot of interesting questions or an interesting perspective, please reach out to us and just let us know if you're interested. And if you have personal stories of survival, share them. If you're willing, we would love to share your story with the world and uh, kind of go over that and just bring it to the masses. Well, you guys, this has been a great episode. I've enjoyed myself. I just want you to remember, don't, don't go dying in the, in the woods. woods.